This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Nutrition is so important to our health. What and how much we eat can help keep us healthy or increase our risk of developing a number of health problems, including cardiovascular disease, diabetes, malignancy, or a variety of degenerative health conditions. Unfortunately, many of our patients obtain their information regarding nutrition from the media, which, as you know, is often very inaccurate. It's our responsibility as primary care providers to assess the patient's nutritional status and give them accurate information regarding dietary changes they should make in order to remain healthy. This starts with the nutritional history. Yet very few of us have had any formal education in nutrition. How do we take a nutritional history? What are the important questions to ask? We'll discuss this and other important nutritional issues with Tara Schmidt, a registered dietitian at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Tara, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start by talking about why nutrition is so important. It has both potential to cause good things and bad things. So what are the benefits of staying on a healthy diet? Yeah, you kind of stole my answer from me in your introduction. Oh, sorry so you did it fabulous. I like to remind people that nutrition can have an impact on almost every organ system in the body, right? So you could name an organ and I can find something that could be related to whether that be good nutrition or poor nutrition. So we can spin this preventatively and talk about, all right, if we have the best possible nutrition, what benefit are we giving to the body? Or the opposite of what are we putting ourselves at risk at if we have poor nutrition? So you mentioned it, heart disease, metabolic syndrome, certain cancers. Five of the eight leading causes of death in the United States actually have a known nutritional influence, which is a little scary, right? It is, it is very scary. So, as I mentioned, you know, I had no formal training in nutrition back in medical school or residency, yeah. and uh, maybe it's different now, but summarize everything we need to know about nutrition in the next two minutes, you know, what, start with the different types of nutrients, <laughs> macronutrients, micronutrients. Yeah, my answer is going to be send your patient to a dietitian who did, right, get ah, okay. training in this topic. But macronutrients I describe as often calorie containing. So think carbohydrates, fats, and protein all contribute calories to our diet. Alcohol is technically one because it has calories per gram. And you could also think of water as a macronutrient. These are the nutrients that our body needs in larger amounts, whereas micronutrients would be our vitamins and minerals not calorie containing and needed in the body in smaller amounts. So what do you see as the more or most common nutritional problems in our population right now? This probably is going to be a whole nother talk, but can I bring up yeah, obesity? Because that, that's, oh, that's it, right? That's an important issue, yeah. And obesity as a disease state itself is then linked to so many other chronic diseases. So we have kind of this hub of obesity as a disease state, and then the link it has to diabetes, cardiovascular health, cholesterol, blood pressure, metabolic syndrome, you name it. So obesity was the first thing that came to my mind, especially in America. What else do you see? What else do we see other than too much nutrition? 
Yeah, so in malnutrition, and this is an interesting concept, you can be malnourished and have obesity. Being malnourished is simply not having enough of the right nutrients. So when sometimes we think of malnourished patients, we assume that they're underweight, but that's not necessarily true. So a lot of times it is the specific condition that we are trying to help a patient better or improve that will bring them to a dietitian. So you've got dietitians across the clinic. We are in, mm-hmm. in renal and we're in cardiology and we're in diabetes and we're in bariatrics and we're in peds and we're in OB because what you eat impacts all of these things. So in terms of what we're doing too much of. In America specifically, we're talking sodium, saturated fats, and added sugar. And what we are certainly not getting enough of is fruits and vegetables. And I don't, I think everyone knows that, but it's still true and it remains true year after year after year. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later. And I think our patients are getting tired of hearing that from us. It is is important information, but I think that's why some of these more bizarre dietary recommendations that they're seeing on the internet are popular. They think, wow, I could eat 26 cinnamon rolls a day and lose weight. And uh, that's more appealing than eating fruits, vegetables, and Mm -hmm. so forth. People want nutrition to be exciting and new. And I think it's good news. Apparently the media thinks it's bad news that it's not that different. I will sometimes tell a patient, you know, what did you learn in elementary school, right? Were you taught to make sure to have some kind of calcium? I don't care if it's milk or not, but something calcium, something that is a fruit, something that's a vegetable, something that provides your body with protein and something that provides your body with energy. And everyone kind of nods their heads. They're like, yeah, I'm like, okay, Mm -hmm. run with that because that's not how the majority of us are eating. And it's not that exciting, but it still remains true. I don't know how many more studies you know you need about how poorly we're eating. Yeah. And they that go back to we're still doing the same incorrect things, and what is correct for the body is still not happening. So yeah. I know it's boring, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you know, so much important stuff in our life we learned in elementary school. We just gotta go back and remember all that stuff. Except those parallelograms. I've never used a parallelogram in my career, right? So I don't know why we have to learn that. Well, I never used calculus either. (laughs) When we see our patients, one problem we have as primary care providers is we need to be as efficient as we can because it seems like every year we're getting less and less time to see our patients. So how can we assess their nutritional status? Is there anything that can make our life easier? Surveys, screening instruments, anything, anything out there like that? Yeah. So my first question when I speak on this topic, especially to physicians or other providers is what are you going to get out of it? So if you are going to go in depth and do a formal, let's call it a 24 hour recall with your patient and spend the time to do that, what are you going to do with it? So if you're not going to utilize the questions that you're asking, and those questions are not going to be purposeful in your visit, then skip it. We know a lot of patients have what we call questionnaire fatigue, right? They fill out all these questions. I'm a patient, right? right? I fill out 17 questionnaires for my child before he goes to a well child. And it's important to me that that information goes somewhere or that it's utilized. So if you're going to ask the questions, my best advice would be that they are tailored questions related to your patient. So if you're seeing someone for hypertension, 
instead of a 24 hour recall, let's have a conversation about your frequency of processed foods or your frequency of restaurant eating. If you have a patient who has uncontrolled diabetes, let's have a specific conversation about their carbohydrate intake, whether or not they're taking their insulin, if that's on board. So I would say if you're going to ask the questions, make sure that they are tailored and that you're going to do something with that information. Can an RD do it for you? So not everyone, of course, has access to dietitians, but if you do have access in your facility, you can probably skip the assessment because we have the time, luckily, to do that and to focus. A few things that are out there that you could consider using if you want to do it yourself with a tool, myplate.gov has probably like a five-minute quiz that a patient and you could take together on their website. There is a Mediterranean diet kind of quick assessment tool. And this is questions that they used in the PREDIMED study to see how closely patients were adhering to a Mediterranean diet. And other things that we've done here are build those questionnaires that physicians or dietitians created specific to their practice and build them into the electronic medical record and have patients assigned to them before your visit. So you're actually viewing that information before they even step into your office. So when we see a patient, and obviously we can't send all of our patients to a dietitian, although sure. that probably would be a, a good idea, we need to assess their nutritional status. So mm -hmm. the basic topic for this podcast is how to do a nutritional assessment. So as a primary care provider, how should we do this? We know in research that patients do better when information is presented to them in a question format that relates to them. So something that I'll have physicians ask is, how do you feel like you could improve your diet? You are now asking the patient about their beliefs, their motivation, if they care or not. So how do you feel like you could improve your diet? If obesity is on board, do you believe that you're consuming excess calories? Where do you think those are coming from? What are some components of your diet that may need a little bit of extra attention? You mentioned before, Dachuka, that our patients are fairly knowledgeable about general nutrition, right? We, we kind of all know the basics. And so instead of repeating that information, which you had mentioned, patients don't necessarily want to hear, put it back on them. Ask them what they could improve about their diet. I could answer that question right now. I'm assuming that you could as well. When the patient comes up with the answer themselves, it's now in their psychology. It's now coming out of their mouth. You're allowed to now write it in their record. So we really want this conversation to be patient-driven so that the motivation is there, ideally, for them to make a change. You know, one of the most common questions I get regarding nutrition is, how can I lose weight? Yeah. And I often start by asking them, well, tell me what you're eating. Let's start, mm -hmm. how many meals would have red meat? What do you have for dessert? And so forth. Is there any information about how accurate that information is when we ask our patients mm -hmm. what they're eating? Are we getting an accurate answer? Because I get a sense that we're often not. You're not. So that's true because if you were to actually do a true formal 24 hour recall, we're talking about how many teaspoons, how many tablespoons. Okay, you poured cream in your coffee this morning. Can you estimate that in ounces for me? And we're not good at that. I'm not perfect at that. So you're not going to get a, an accurate picture, but you can certainly start to assess 
where maybe where trouble spots are. So a question that I like to ask people who want to lose weight is, where do you think you're consuming excess calories? Where do you think you're consuming empty calories? Are you drinking any calories? Tell me about your meal structure. And people will start to tell you about some of their habits and they'll hear it and you'll start to hear, uh-oh, okay, maybe snacking's the problem. Maybe that... 500 calorie coffee drink that they have every morning is problematic. And when you hear those specific habits that we have the opportunity to then change, I heard that you're drinking that coffee drink every morning. I get it. They're delicious. How do you feel about a small versus a medium? How do you feel about saving those for Fridays to celebrate the end of the week? So the advice that you're now giving is tailored to them, not just kind of this broad, hey, eat more of this, less of that, you're actually giving them an actionable item that they can go do tomorrow. In some patients, when I'm getting really serious about their nutrition, I will ask them what they're eating. And then I ask them sometimes to do a diary for a week. You Absolutely. Know, write down everything you eat. And it's often very eye-opening where a patient may say, well, I have a couple of cups of coffee in the morning. Um, but they don't say that, oh, yeah, I put, uh, you know, a couple of tablespoons of cream in there as mm -hmm. well, or the amount of snacks that they may eat. You know, I tell them, write down everything you put in your mouth. Yes. And it's very eye-opening where some of these hidden calories come from that they didn't think about when they first told me what they're eating. So yeah. I find that somewhat helpful. Self-monitoring what you're talking about, so tracking is one of the main predictors of long-term weight loss. So when we study weight loss maintainers, people who have lost weight and kept it off, those are the people we wanna study, right? Those are the important ones. One of the most common tools that they're using to keep that weight off is self-monitoring. So I'll tell patients, I don't care if you use Post-it notes or an app that costs a hundred bucks a day or a free app, or a paper journal. If you have increased self-awareness of what you are putting in your mouth, so we say kind of, if you bite it, write it, drinking as well, you then get to identify, oh my gosh, I had no idea that every Friday when there's donuts in the break room, I'm actually having two of them. I have a quarter of one, but I do it eight times a day, which is kind of a dietitian thing to do, right? Eat a quarter of a donut. Well, donuts, donuts don't count though. Okay, because there's, there's a hole in the middle. Right, yeah. <laughs> so self-monitoring is absolutely something that anyone could use to really assess any component. So if you feel like someone is struggling with hydration, have them start tracking their fluid intake. If someone is struggling with weight management, have them start tracking their calorie intake. Mm -hmm. It puts that work back on the patient, which they're not always a huge fan of, but then also puts the insight uh, into that yeah. patient so that they can identify changes. Yeah, I find it very educational for the patient, for them exactly. to realize all these little things that they didn't think about that really add up. And then it's not you or I telling them what to eat. Mm -hmm. It's the patient identifying, here is what I'm eating. And then maybe together, you know, with a physician or other provider or dietitian, you can come up with some potential changes. Mm -hmm. So which patients might we be seeing that would really benefit from seeing a nutritionist or a dietitian? Absolutely. So again, think of those disease states that may benefit or improve with changes in nutrition. So I have colleagues who specialize in CKD or in kidney stones, diabetes, of course, obesity, pregnancy, GI disorders, allergies, oncology, patients who are underweight, 
patients who are undergoing a transplant. We have a big uh, population of cardiovascular patients. So that was a long list. Was that, a, was that yeah, enough for yeah. you? So basically I'm thinking everybody. about my colleagues, everyone. <laughs> yeah. One big issue, we sort of touched on this a little while ago, is our patients are getting a lot of misinformation about nutrition. They're seeing it on the internet, they're reading mm -hmm. about it, they're hearing it from their friends. When we hear some of this stuff, we just kind of are shocked by some of the bizarreness of what they've been told. How do we convince them that this information is not actually correct? Yeah, my blood pressure is like rising. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's important for medical providers to teach their patients about what a reliable resource is, right? So if you remember in college, we were taught, okay, these are credible resources. Look for, you know, a .edu or a .gov. These are non-credible resources, Wikipedia, Google, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So if we can give our, our patients a 30-second brief on reliable information, where to find it, what to look for, is the author credible, right? Is this, does this sound like reasonable information even? So sometimes patients will say, all right, so my friend's cousin's dog walker told me X, what do you think? And I'll say, can you repeat that back to yourself? And I'm being completely serious. And I, I try to do it politely. I'll say, say that out loud again. And with your knowledge, tell me if that sounds like a good idea. Tell me if that sounds reasonable. And most of the time, patients can be a reasonable sounding board, even for themselves and kind of for all of this craziness that's on the internet. I was going to use a more inappropriate word. If you can convince them that they know enough, they can usually be reasonable in navigating that space. Are there some reliable sources that you refer your patients to? I do. MyPlate.gov, right, is our, our government's website and has the, the MyPlate, which is formerly the pyramid when I was growing up, DietaryGuidelines.gov, so the United States Dietary Guidelines that are put out every five years. EatRate.org is the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics website. So AND is the governing body of registered dietitians in America. So EatRate.org is always a, a good space. And then think of the other kind of national institutions or governing bodies that you could rely on for guidelines. So American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, American Diabetes Association, National Cancer Institute, Am I allowed to promote mayoclinic.org? Sure, um, so think about what you may consider to be a reliable resource. And there's typically a section that's more appropriate in terms of reading level, you know, understandability for patients on those websites. Okay. Now, I want to very briefly discuss nutritional supplements. And I realize we could easily spend one, if not several podcasts on uh, nutritional yeah. supplements. But I see this a lot. You know, so many of our patients are taking various supplements. Mm -hmm. And do our patients need these? Are there any that are really of value to them? They're of value to someone if they are deficient in that mm -hmm. nutrient. I can sometimes categorize supplements into harmful. This thing may harm you. Neutral, right? Maybe wasting a little money, but I don't think it's harmful. Not positive that it's helpful, but go ahead. And then helpful. You are deficient in vitamin D. Therefore, I'm going to ask that you take a vitamin D supplement or you are not consuming enough dietary blank from my assessment of you. It would be recommended that you, you get at least the recommended amount of that. So 
that's how I categorize them. And then, of course, depending on that person's medical history, we have patients who are at higher risk of deficiency. So even if there's not a deficiency present, we'll ask patients sometimes to take supplements. So think of a prenatal multivitamin. We ask women who would potentially get pregnant to start taking a prenatal so that we lower their risk mm -hmm. of deficiency. Patients after bariatric surgery, et cetera. I think one of the biggest issues I see regarding nutritional supplements is over supplementation with vitamin D. You mentioned D sure. a little while ago. And I have been checking vitamin D levels in some patients who are on large doses of mm -hmm. vitamin D supplements. Um, and it's amazing. I, I've checked this myself. There are a variety of doses available over the counter, including up to 10,000 units per capsule with no instructions on the bottle. And most patients, and rightly so, assume that one pill is one daily dose. Sure. And I have had patients taking 10,000 units a day and their D levels are sky high. Yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest issues with at least vitamin D supplement. I, I find a whole lot more excessive vitamin D levels than low levels. Because this is technically out of the scope of registered dietitian if we're talking prescriptive. So I will always say, please share with your medical provider any supplement you're taking. If you want to have a picture of the label on your phone instead of bringing in your duffel bag, which I've seen before, an actual duffel bag. Mm -hmm. And at Mayo, we can also get uh, a complimentary medicine consult or even like a polypharmacy consult. And I love to see what the pharmacists do because most of it is red pen crossed mm -hmm. out. Right. So that's a huge benefit that we have. But I do see what you see as well, which is this over supplementation with the assumption from the patient that more is better, right. which is not right. always true. And I think this has just been an informal study that I have done, but it seems the more nutritional supplements patients are taking, the harder it is to get them to stop even one of them. Mm -hmm. If they're just taking one or two and you feel they're not healthy for them, they're willing to stop. But yeah. somebody who comes in taking 25, 30 things, I find it's almost impossible to get them to change their habits. But And we, we lecture a lot about bioavailability and synergistic foods. So when you are taking a supplement form of X versus eating that, you know, micronutrient in an apple or in an orange, mm -hmm. what you're getting from the food is going to be significantly more beneficial because of how foods interact with each other. So I will have a, a conversation of, do you not feel like you're getting that in your diet? And if you don't feel like you are, can we talk about some of the ways that we could maybe get you that nutrient from a food source? And hopefully that may convince the patient to maybe consider one, adapting their diet for the better and two, eliminating a supplement. Mm -hmm. Well, Terry, you've given us some really important information on nutrition. Can you summarize our discussion by giving us maybe two or three key points? Yes. If you are going to have a nutrition conversation with your patients, make sure that it is purposeful. Make sure that it is focused on the patient that you're in front of and make sure that there's going to be something that comes out of it, right? Whether that be a referral or a conversation, patients don't want to provide information just for fun. Tailor it to that patient's interest, to that patient's motivation. Refer to an RD if you have the availability, only because that person would have expertise and the time to do this. And drive those patients to appropriate resources. 
or develop them yourself, right? So if you have an institution that you work for that can develop patient education materials or, you know, post things on your website, do it yourself because then you know where it's coming from and you know who the exact author was even. Well, we've been discussing nutrition and how to take a nutritional history with Tara Schmidt, a registered dietitian at the Mayo Clinic. Tara, thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. This has been fun and I learned a lot. Thank you for having me. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week. Mm -hmm.